When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. Today's episode is all about the start of our Ritiro at Di Maro Folgarida in Trentino. I'll cover it all in two parts. In part one, we'll review the first press conference at Di Maro, which was after the afternoon session on Saturday. And in part two, we'll talk about the highlights from the first few days of training sessions. So let's begin with the Conferenza Stampa on day one at Di Maro. Luciano Spalletti was joined by sporting director Cristiano Giuntoli to address the media for the first time this summer. Giuntoli was surprisingly candid about most of the negotiations that are currently ongoing. So let's go through them one at a time and then I'll give you my thoughts on each situation. The first big bomb that Giuntoli dropped was that the club has offered Koulibaly 6 million euros net per season for five seasons and a position in management in the future. That is without bonuses, so Koulibaly would be guaranteed 30 million euros over the term of the contract at an expense of about 60 million euros gross to the club. Now, from a financial standpoint, I think that's a fair offer. That is the same salary Koulibaly made in the past few seasons when he was in his prime. Koulibaly is now 31 years of age, so he's basically at the end of his prime. He'll certainly be past his prime at 36, which is when this proposed contract extension would expire. That is also a lot of money for a club that has not played in the Champions League over the past two seasons. Just last week, Calcio e Finanza published an article on the financials of Filmauro, and according to that article, Filmauro lost 66 million euros in 2021 after losing 34.7 million euros in 2020. That's a total loss of 100.7 million euros over the last two seasons. 92% of Filmauro's revenues are attributable to SSC Napoli SPA, so most of the losses are attributed to the club as well. The club attributes most of those losses to lower capital gains. In other words, the club didn't sell any players during the pandemic. Obviously, every club is hurting financially during the pandemic, which made it very difficult to sell players for their true value. 
Though it's not in the article, I'd suggest that not playing in the Champions League played a role as well, as the revenue earned from competing in the Champions League is significantly higher than the revenue earned competing in the Europa League. So you can see why De Laurentiis is trying so desperately to lower his wage bill. He's doing what most companies did during the pandemic, which is cut costs. For football clubs, the largest fixed cost is players' salaries. So I'm perfectly fine with the offer to Koulibaly. The issue I have is with the approach taken by De Laurentiis. With respect to the figures, he uses a very old-school approach to negotiation, which is to start low and gradually increase his offer. He also makes really stupid comments in the media, like saying players need to choose between Napoli and the vile currency. Both the approach and these public comments are insulting to the players, and not just to the players who are directly involved in the negotiations. Any other player watching these negotiations unfold knows that the same thing could happen to them. I'm sure that Mertens, Ospina, and Koulibaly were paying close attention to the Lorenzo Insigne negotiations and knew exactly what they were up against. I think Insigne was the first of the Senatori to take a stand against De Laurentiis, and the others are now following suit. In the case of Ospina and Mertens, De Laurentiis hasn't budged, which is his prerogative, but in the case of Koulibaly, he's clearly willing to make an exception to a couple of his rules. Now, as far as the role in management goes, that's something that would need to be clearly defined in the contract. Surely Koulibaly cannot decide today that he wants to retire at the age of 36. He may still want to play then, but I think that's something that can be resolved in the contract. For instance, the contract could be written to say that Koulibaly will have the option to join the management of the club after he retires, whenever that may be, and that that option would survive beyond the end of the contract. I also can't help but wonder whether De Laurentiis was willing to offer Koulibaly that role in management because he knows he may sell the club before then, so Koulibaly's role in management would be the next owner's problem. So the question now is, will Koulibaly accept the offer? According to Juntoli, Koulibaly has asked for time to think about the offer. Meanwhile, the reports are that Koulibaly, through his agent Fali Ramadani, has rejected the offer. So your guess is as good as mine in terms of what is actually the case. Now, if the decision is purely financial in nature, then I think they are close enough to get a deal done. Chelsea are reportedly willing to pay 8 to 9 million euros net for Koulibaly, which I'm sure Ramadani is going to use to try to drive the offer up. I don't think De Laurentiis is going to offer much more than 6 million. Perhaps he might add bonuses tied to things like games played or minutes played, winning the Scudetto or reaching certain stages of the Champions League, but I don't see him increasing the guaranteed salary all that much. He just can't compete with the amount of money in the Premier League. However, if the decision is not purely financial, in other words, if Koulibaly wants to play for a team that can compete for important trophies like the Champions League, then I suspect he will play out the final season of his current contract and walk for free next summer. One thing that is certain is that Koulibaly will not join Juventus. We already knew that Koulibaly would not do that, but Juntoli confirmed that even the club would not sell him to Juventus either. Let's move on to Dries Mertens next. Juntoli said that the club has offered him a salary of 2.5 million euros net or 5 million euros gross, but it was not accepted. Again, I think that's a pretty decent offer for a player who's now 35 years of age. 
That would represent a 2 million euro pay cut from Mertens' current salary of 4.5 million euros per season. Now, if you look back at those two seasons during Mertens' most recent extension, he missed 12 games in all competitions two seasons ago, and then he missed a few games at the start of last season due to the shoulder surgery he had after the Euros. Injury is always a concern for players at that age. Then you have to consider that for Spalletti, Mertens is a substitute player. Now, I get that he is the all-time leading goal scorer in club history, and he's arguably the most important person in the locker room. But if you're assessing Mertens purely in terms of what he has to offer in this system, I think 2.5 million euros is a fair offer as well. We'll see if Mertens comes back with a counter offer. The reports have constantly changed with this negotiation. Initially, the reports were that Mertens was willing to take a pay cut to stay. Then we heard he sent an email to De Laurentiis asking for 4 million a season. Then, as Claudio Russo noted on our last episode, we heard that Mertens asked for a 2.6 million euro salary, a 1.4 million euro signing bonus, which combined is the 4 million supposedly requested by email, plus another 800,000 euros for the lawyers helping him with the negotiation. So the parties are still pretty far apart. Now, sometimes you can also learn from what was not said, and unlike with Koulibaly, who Juntoli said has been offered a 5-year extension, Juntoli made no mention of the term of the extension offered to Mertens. I'm inclined to think that the club has only offered Mertens one year, and I suspect Mertens wants at least two years. That makes a big difference, not just in terms of the total value of the extension, but specifically with respect to the signing bonus. If the club is only willing to offer one year, then from their perspective, Mertens is asking for $4 million a season. If we assume that Mertens is asking for a two-year extension, then that signing bonus is effectively 0.7 million euros per season, and Mertens' annual request is effectively 3.3 million a season, which represents a pay cut from his current salary. In any case, I suspect these negotiations will continue. It seems like both sides have a little bit of wiggle room. The reports are that Mertens has rejected the offer from Antwerp, which makes sense. I think he wants to play in a more competitive league with the World Cup coming up in November. Now, he could do that at Marseille, which seems to be the only other club that is interested. But I'm hoping that a little bit more money and his love for Napoli will keep him in Napoli. So those were the two players that Juntoli was quite candid about. I don't think he was particularly open about the potential incoming players, and for good reason. He doesn't want to jeopardize those negotiations, nor does he want to alienate current players. One example is Gerard Delofeu. Juntoli basically said that they inquired about Delofeu, but that's about it. I find that very hard to believe, but I think he has to say that because we know that the club needs to sell either Unas or Politano before they can officially purchase Delofeu. Like I said, they don't want to alienate players like Unas and Politano in case they're not able to sell them, or at least Juntoli doesn't want to alienate those players. Spalletti came right out and said that Politano has created this situation, alluding to his desire to leave. I was not impressed by that statement by Spalletti, if I'm being honest. Surely Spalletti was responding to Mario Giuffredi's comments to Sky Sport a few days prior, where he confirmed that Politano wants to leave and try something new. But just as Politano let his agent do the talking, 
I think Spalletti should have let Juntoli do the talking. Juntoli made a more general statement that if anyone is not happy, then let's see what offers they bring to the table. He added that no real offers have come in considering Politano's value. Now, in that interview with Sky Sport, Giuffredi confirmed that Politano would like to play for Gattuso at Valencia, but we all know Valencia are in serious financial trouble, which is probably why they haven't made an official offer. Now, Politano arrived at Di Mauro on Monday, and he was photographed having a conversation with Giuntoli, so we'll keep an eye on that situation. Another player that Giuntoli downplayed being interested in was Paolo Dybala, but I completely understand why. First off, all indications are that Dybala is very close to signing with Inter. The last thing you want to do is get Napoli fans excited about signing a star player, let alone a star Argentinian, and then let them down. Second of all, as some people have speculated, if he is a realistic target, you don't want to seem overexcited and risk having to pay a higher wage, especially when you're dealing with Dybala's agent, Jorge Antun. Personally, I'd be very surprised if we signed Dybala, so I would caution against getting too excited about him. Now, if it were up to me, I would rather invest those funds in other positions like a fourth center back and a backup striker. I know that Dybala is excellent when he's on, but I question how often he'll be on. Dybala has been quite prone to injury over the past few seasons, and we don't exactly have a great track record of preventing injuries. Also, when we spoke to Claudio Russo, he said the reason Spalletti doesn't play Mertens behind Osimhen often is because Mertens doesn't track back. That leaves the two midfielders in the pivot to cover too much space, and they could easily find themselves outnumbered like we saw in the Empoli match. We'd have the exact same issue if we purchased Dybala and played him in the 10, unless we change the system, say, to a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-1-2. But in either case, we need to sign at least two more center backs, effectively making Dybala more expensive. The one argument in favor of signing Dybala that I do understand is that it's an opportunity for De Laurentiis to give something back to the fans. We've already lost Cinciano Spina, we're on the verge of losing Mertens, and we could lose Koulibaly if not this season, then possibly next season. The hate for De Laurentiis appears to be at an all-time high, so this would be a statement signing from him. Now, there have been reports that if Koulibaly does not extend his contract, then those funds could be used to pay Dybala. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Koulibaly may not extend, but he still has one year left on his contract, so in Dybala's first season, we'd still be paying Koulibaly 6 million euros. The only way we could use the Koulibaly salary to pay Dybala is if we sold Koulibaly, assuming a suitable offer comes in, and then we'd have the problem of trying to find someone to replace Koulibaly. The last player we'll address in part one is Alex Meret. Spalletti backtracked a little bit with his comments on Meret. He said Meret is young, has experience with the national team, and he trains to fill the gaps. That's a pretty big step back from the comments Spalletti made to Sky Sport, where he really emphasized the importance of goalkeepers playing with their feet. I suspect Spalletti was trying to influence the negotiations with those comments to Sky Sport, and now he's accepted that Meret will be his number one. Ironically, the very first thing we saw at the start of the morning session on the first day of training at Di Mauro was the goalkeepers working on their footwork. 
I still don't think Spalletti is entirely convinced though because he still said that they are looking for another keeper who can play alongside Meret or in his place which almost sounded like they're looking for someone who can win the starting position. But when they turned to Juntoli he did confirm that the club has reached an agreement with Meret. Juntoli also confirmed that they wanted to extend both Ospina and Meret because we had the best defense in the league but Ospina elected to move on. Now I'm no expert on reading body language or facial expressions but it seemed to me that Spalletti was just saying what he had to say because the club has chosen Meret and there's not that much that he can do about it. I suspect that is why De Laurentiis likes him so much because Spalletti has become a bit of a yes man to De Laurentiis. So as far as I can tell Meret will be the number one, the club is still looking for another goalkeeper to be number two with Salvatore Sirigu being the most likely option at this point in time and one of Davide Marfella, Nikita Contini and Huberti Dasiak will be the third choice keeper. If I had to guess from what I've seen so far, Contini is most likely to be third choice followed by Dasiak and then Marfella. That will do for part one. In part two we'll talk a little bit more about the training sessions over the first few days at Di Mauro. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary and there are no set tiers, but that does help me to improve the show. I basically reinvest those funds back into the show so I can continue to provide quality content for you. You can also support the show by sharing it with a friend and following our social media accounts at Forza Napoli pod. Alright, so let's talk about the first few days at Di Maro. I'm recording this episode on Monday, so the first three days of Di Maro are now complete. The team had two training sessions on Saturday and Sunday, and one session on Monday. The sessions on the first two days were broadcast in their entirety by Calcionapoli 24, which you can find for free on their YouTube page. The lone training session on Monday was not broadcast, so we only have media reports on how the Monday session went. So what I'm going to do is provide you some of the highlights from those training sessions. Hopefully that saves you the time of watching the entire sessions because admittedly they weren't that thrilling. Now I won't be providing this level of detail for the entire Tiro. I'm doing that for today's episode just to give you a sense of what the training sessions are like. Going forward, I'll most likely provide weekly updates of noteworthy events because these sessions do tend to be quite repetitive. So let's get started. The first thing that stood out to me was that our players arrived wearing last season's training gear, which was a little bit disappointing, but not as bad as last summer. If you recall, last summer we switched from Kappa being our technical sponsor to self-producing, but we just barely got the new gear ready for the start of the season. So for our summer retiros last season, we still wore the Kappa gear from the previous season. Also, because our sponsorship agreement with Kimbo ended, we put a big blue Napoli sticker over the Kimbo logos on the back of the training gear and jerseys, which looked very amateur. Because EA7 is still our design partner, I'm less bothered that we're wearing last season's gear, though it does seem like we're missing an opportunity to sell some merchandise at Di Maro. Of course, we haven't seen the new shirts yet. De Laurenti said that we would have them for Di Maro. Actually, he said he might have them before Di Maro started, so obviously that didn't happen. There have been rumors that De Laurentiis is waiting for a marquee signing before presenting the new shirt. 
I don't think that makes sense, but either way, I'm hoping we have the new shirt before our first friendly at the model on Thursday, but the way things are going, I doubt that will happen. The other thing we got right away was an update on the coaching staff. As Claudio Russo told us on our last episode, technical coach Francesco Calzona is no longer with the club. Spalletti confirmed that in the Conferenza Stampa that Calzona has received an important offer to be a first coach, which Claudio said is likely the Slovakian national team job. Salvatore Russo has been brought in to replace Calzona. He actually played for Napoli's Primavera team in the early 90s. As Spalletti said, Russo was his captain when he coached at Ancona, where he had Russo and Francesco Montervino on the wings. Of course, Montervino went on to play many seasons for Napoli. I think it was seven seasons for the Azzurri, mostly in Serie B. Spalletti also confirmed that Daniele Baldini has returned. He had reportedly left the club in the summer at the end of last season. He would have been a big loss to the coaching staff, so I'm glad to see Baldini is back. So those were the off-the-field updates. Let's now move to the -the on-the-field updates. In terms of the squad, all of the players who represented their countries in international competitions were given a few extra days off. So let me quickly run through the squad. We started the model with Davide Marfella, Nikita Contini, and Huberti Dasek as the keepers. Alex Meret joined the squad on Monday. The defenders were Davide Costanzo, Juan Jesus, Mario Rui, Matias Oliveira, Alessandro Zanoli, and Karim Zadadka. Jesus left the model on Sunday to join his wife, who is expecting their second child, I believe. Giovanni Di Lorenzo and Amir Rachmani both arrived at the model on Monday, and Kalidou Koulibaly is expected to join on Tuesday. In the midfield, we started with Diego Deme, Fabian Ruiz, Michael Fuloruncho, and Gianluca Gaetano. Stanislav Lobotka arrived during the afternoon session on Sunday, and he got a really nice welcome. First, he got a big ovation from the fans at Di Maro. Then Spalletti bowed to him before giving Lobo a big embrace. And finally, Spalletti stopped the training session so that all of his teammates could greet him. So that was really nice to see. And the team bonding is a really important part of these retreats. A noticeable absence in the midfield was Primavera midfielder Antonio Vergara, who a lot of people were looking forward to seeing at Di Maro. When I saw the squad list, I immediately suspected that a loan move was imminent, and that seems to be the case. According to Spazio Napoli, the rumor is that Vergara is going to join Pro Vercelli in Serie C because Giuntoli has a good relationship with their sporting director, Alex Casella, but other clubs are interested as well, including Cesena, Pescara, and Viz Pizarro. Piotr Zielinski, Eli Felmes, and Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa arrived at Di Maro on Monday as well. Finally, up top, we began the retreat with Javicha Kvaraschelia, Chuki Lozano, Andrea Petania, and Alessio Zerbin. Matteo Politano, Aramunas, and Giuseppe Ambrosino arrived at Di Mauro on Monday, and Victor Osimen is expected to arrive on Tuesday. Antonio Cioffi is another noticeable absence from the Primavera. He's been loaned to Serici club Pontedera. So that's the squad. Before I get to some of the players who stood out to me, Let me give you a quick outline of how the training sessions have been structured so far. As I mentioned, there were two sessions on Saturday and Sunday and one session on Monday. For the most part, the goalkeepers trained separately from the outfield players. The morning sessions generally consisted of cardio work, work in the gym, and passing drills. The passing drills are largely aimed at training players to make one-touch passes, which was pretty much identical to what we saw last summer in Spalletti's first season in charge. 
On day two, we also got to see a little bit of football tennis, which is generally entertaining because you see a lot of scissor kicks and bicycle kicks. But it was the afternoon sessions that tended to be more entertaining as they largely consisted of scrimmages. Typically, there were two scrimmages on a reduced pitch. In the first, the players were only allowed to make two touches at a time. So again, the focus there is playing quick passes and moving off the ball into positions to receive passes. And then the intensity was increased for the second scrimmage, which was more competitive. So let's close the pod with some early standouts. Not surprisingly, it's the players who are fighting for a place in the squad or for a place in the starting 11 that seem to be working the hardest. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see a whole lot of Oliveira. He only did part of the team training and the rest was personalized training. That's due to the knee sprain he suffered playing for Uruguay during the last international break. His knee was wrapped for the afternoon session on Saturday, but the wrap was gone on Tuesday. We also learned at the model that Oliveira will wear Matic Hamsix number 17. Now back to the scrimmages. On day one, the yellow team won 6-3 and the standout players were Cavada for the blue team and Fabian Zerbin, Foloruncho and Lozano for the yellow team. Cavada was very impressive in his debut. He scored immediately after the start of the first scrimmage, even though you're not supposed to score in that one. He nipped in to steal the ball from Zadatka and blasted a low shot past Idasiak. He scored a goal and added an assist in the second scrimmage, and both were lovely plays. Now, I'm pretty sure Patania fouled Costanzo just before setting up Cavada on the goal, but obviously no one's calling fouls in a scrimmage. Nevertheless, Cavada made a very calm dribble past Lozano before rolling the ball past Contini. On the assist, he made a gorgeous drop of the shoulder to get past Fabian before squaring to Foloruncho for the tap-in. In addition to that goal, Foloruncho hit the frame of the goal on two separate occasions. Meanwhile, Zerbin and Fabian each scored a goal and provided an assist to each other. In fact, they were similar plays, with one winning the ball and the other finishing. They were also both involved in what I thought was the nicest goal of the day. The yellow team completed 12 consecutive passes, before Fabian scored to Lozano for the tap-in. Fabian and Lozano were the only players to score two goals in that scrimmage. Fabian's second was a gorgeous shot from long range into the top corner. Fabian scored a similar goal in the scrimmage on day two. In fact, that one may have been from even further out. The yellow team won that game 6-5 by my count, but it was a blue player in Alessio Zerbin that stood out the most. He scored four out of the five goals for the blue team, And what I really like about him is that desire to score. He's always looking to shoot, and had it not been for some quality goalkeeping at the start of the scrimmage, he might have actually scored a few more. He's also very calm on the ball, which actually seems to be the case of many of the young players in this squad. Now, I've been so impressed with Zerbin that after only the second day of training, I went on record and tweeted that I'm already fairly confident he'll remain with Napoli this season. At 1.82 meters tall, he's a big boy for a winger, but he has pace and technical abilities at the same time. Zerbin is a Napoli youth product, so he would be considered a club-grown player, meaning he would not take up one of the non-club and non-league-grown squad positions. As Spalletti noted in his press conference, he can play on both wings, though I think he's primarily an inverted left winger. I think with Insigne gone, it's important to have a few options on that left wing. We don't know how Cavada is going to adjust to his first season in Serie A, so Zerbin would provide some depth. Now, obviously, it would be Zerbin's first season in Serie A as well, but we also have Elmas that can play on the left wing too. 
Now, I know a lot of people want to see Lozano play on the left, but I suspect with the way the Politano negotiations are going, Lozano will be the permanent right winger. Finally, Andrea Petania and Diego Deme each scored twice in the scrimmage. Petania is a funny player. Most of the time, he appears to be walking around, not really trying a whole lot. But then, out of nowhere, he'll smash the ball into the top corner and make you realize that the potential is there. The last player I'll mention is Davide Costanzo, who I think deserves a shout-out. I was surprised that Costanzo even got the call-up because he had a good season with the Primavera, but not a great season. I suspect he was only called up to this squad because at that point in time, we only had three center backs. To his credit, though, I think he's made a good impression over the first few days. He's working hard. He's hustling. He even scored the first goal of the scrimmage on Saturday. Now, I ultimately don't think he will make the squad. It seems like it's only a matter of time before Napoli announced the signing of Leo Ostegard, who will be the fourth center back. According to Sport Italia, the club had agreed to terms with the player a while ago, but they are now finalizing the details with Brighton. Hopefully, we'll see him before the end of the Ritiro at Di Maro. I suspect that that means we will not see Davide Costanzo at the Ritiro in Castel di Sangro. So that will do for our recap of the first few days at Di Maro. As I said, I'll continue to report on these summer retreats on a weekly basis with a focus on the bigger stories. Hopefully that includes updates on some of the negotiations we discussed in part one, as well as the unveiling of the 2022-23 kits. I'll be back with another episode later in the week. We're going to do something a little bit different for the next episode. It will be a Q&A pod, which I will post on our social media pages. If there are any subjects you'd like me to dig into, be it about the club, both past or present, transfer-related subjects, anything to do with the model or the Primavera, the Femenile, whatever you like, please reply to that post. Or if you want to stay anonymous, you can send them to me via DM, and I'll answer them to the best of my abilities on the next pod. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network.